it's incredible. I, I mean, I was not in geology. I was a wind guy and a solar guy. Then I was an investment banker. Um, but looking at the amount of how much we understand the subsurface is is phenomenal to me. Like what's going on a mile, mile and a half underground? We have very good understanding of what's happening there. There's a connotation of Colorado of clean and environmentally friendly. So I think it really augments our brand. And, and hopefully our company augments Colorado's brand as well. If we're on the forefront, we'll be doing the first carbon capture and sequestration projects to be done in Colorado. This is the Proco 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor hosting Proco 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Brent Lewis, CEO of Carbon America. Carbon America's tagline is making climate change history. It delivers the entire CO2 capture, transport, and storage value chain. Essentially, it's a full-service company making carbon capture and sequestration easy for its customers. Carbon America recently received over $30 million in funding, has a follow-on round that increases that funding even more to get things going. And so I'm, I'm really super intrigued by this interview first because I want to learn about carbon sequestration and why it's practical and safe, and then how this Colorado company will become a big part of solving climate change. So Brent, with that introduction, I'm glad you could join us on Proco 360. Well, hi, Dave. Thank you very much for having me and for allowing me to represent uh, my great company, Carbon America. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more because there's a, a whole line that describes your business, which is the first vertically integrated carbon capture and sequestration super developer. So what's all that mean? Well, well it's a mouthful, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But carbon capture and sequestration is a new sector. Um, there's been some false dawns in the past where um, there have been large projects that had long lead times, feed studies, and they one or two got built, but it's been a, it's been a long road to hoe. So with the change in the Section 45Q tax credits that um, allow us to um, monetize the tax credits that are being you know the, the, we're capturing carbon dioxide and sequestering yeah. it underground, that creates tax credits. So we monetize those. They've changed the price on that. So it's, they've enhanced the pricing. Then all of a sudden, uh, a new pricing regime for Section 45Q opened up a whole new market. All right. Well, we're already getting more technical from a tax standpoint yeah. and all that. I, I do want to come back to that because it it seems I, I wasn't planning on digging into it. In fact, I scratched sure. that that 45Q out of my outline at all because it seemed too, too wonky yep. and technical. But if, in fact, tax credits are driving the sequestration industry, I guess I want to know about that. Yeah. So I guess we're kind of, like you said, probably jumping ahead with yeah. and skipping some of the blocking and tackling of yeah. Section 45Q and carbon capture and sequestration. But 45Q tax credits, if uh, your audience is at all familiar with wind and wind production and wind production probably. tax credits, yeah. so it's a high analog there, right? So you've got, for a wind project, you develop a 200-megawatt wind project. It, it generates uh, megawatt hours, and you get a production tax credit associated with that. And then there's a whole capital industry set up around monetizing those specific tax credits. So for Section 45Q tax credits, which is um, the analog to wind production tax credits, yeah. same customers, same capital providers. So for every ton of CO2 we capture and sequester, uh, the government provides a tax credit equal to $50 per metric ton. Hmm. All right. I'm going to park it right there Why for now. We? Yeah. So let's move on and talk. And, and I think we're going to come back to that because I am interested in the financial model around this. So with that bit of background, let's back up 
Is this a big industry now? You said there were a couple of like false starts around carbon, carbon sequestration. So is it really an industry now? I mean, how big is it? What's it look like? You know, that. Yeah. So nationally, it's, it's a very small industry. Um, there are activities where people are utilizing carbon dioxide for enhanced oil recovery. And a lot of times that CO2 is coming from uh, a CO2 subsurface um, mine, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're doing is we're doing point source carbon capture and sequestration. There's only two or three projects in the U.S. currently operating that do that. What does that mean, point source? Point, you, yeah, so when you've got a, a, a carbon dioxide emitter, like a, uh, a factory, power, for a example, factory, a power plant, yeah, an ethanol plant. So it's coming out of the stack. That's right. Yeah. And so you put a capture system on the tail end of that smokestack, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it separates the carbon dioxide from the other um, elements that are in that flue stream. Right. So then once you have that uh, carbon dioxide and you've separated it through some technology, um, then you compress it, move it along a pipeline. And then you, what you're going to do with our company and most other companies, we're going to be sequestering that carbon dioxide about a mile underground in saline aquifers or other geologic storage um, areas that are conducive to storing permanently carbon dioxide. So, you know, the idea, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that the carbon dioxide is no longer in a gas form, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Well, so when we separate the CO2, we're condensing it into liquid or supercritical form to facilitate the transfer of the CO2 along a pipeline. Typically, it'll be a pipeline, but there's other ways we can move carbon dioxide once it's captured and compressed. There's trucking, there's barging, you can rail it. But it's essentially a liquid at that time, right? Yeah, that's right. So you're compressing it into a liquid, you're running it through a pipe, or you're pumping it into a tank that can keep it compressed at, right. at that level, keep it liquefied, sending it a thousand, what did you say, how far down? About a, about a mile. About a mile underground Deep. into into a, uh, a rock formation that's conducive to holding it, right? That's right. But it, if it doesn't hold it under pressure, then what happens? Does it turn? Does it essentially turn to gas again and leak out of the ground? No, no. So it, uh, the attributes of the of the of the lithography underneath that where where the CO two is going and it's going to typically stay in in a liquid or solid form. Solid. Yeah. So you can compress carbon dioxide into what carbon? Yeah. So it might be reacting into with diamonds? other, other minerals. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, other other minerals that it's reacting with underground. So. To what extent can you assure me, can you assure listeners, like this isn't just some like you shove it in there and then eventually it just sort of works its way back out? Well, so there's a lot of geologic analysis that we do. We have a team of about a dozen professionals. They comprise reservoir engineers, subsurface folks, um, geotechs, geological engineers, petrophysicists. Hmm. So we do a lot of studying. So the first thing that we do when we look for a location where a potential um, sequestration site. Um, we will be looking to gather seismic data. Um, oftentimes we're hopeful to find the seismic data that's already existing. So what we're doing is we're purchasing that seismic data. And what we do as a first phase, when we analyze the potential for a potential sequestration site is we need to analyze fault risk. So that's, that's what you're kind of hitting. Because if it were to, if it were to fracture or fissure, Mm -hmm. then it would release Right. That's right. Yeah. So there might be, you know, t- through tectonic movements of of of, of the Earth, um, there might be strata, like I'm um, sorry, faults yeah. that are going diagonally or vertically, um, that would create potential issues with the CO2 finding its way to the surface or near the surface. Yeah. And these aren't really chambers. Like I, I was initially picturing sort of like an underground cavern, and it was like you know had really hard structured walls, and you could pump it in there, and then 
put a cap on it somehow. And it was, these aren't really chambers like caves or anything, or, or are they? Well, there, there's, there's sand. There's, there, there are different types of um, ge geology where it's conducive to put the CO2. And there's typically some form of rock formation above where we're anticipating mm. putting the CO2, where it mm -hmm. does, we actually call it the cap rock. Hmm. So it's design. It's not designed, but it, uh, we're, it serves that purpose serves of holding purpose. it in. Yeah. Right. Wow. So if this has been sort of a start, stop, start, stop industry, and now you feel like you've got the technology to make it work, like, how do you know that it's going to work? Like when you do these tests mm -hmm. and you test the structures, do you really know like what you're like, that you're going to be right? Well, the analog is, you know, the hydrocarbon extraction business, right? Oil and gas. It's been around right. a long time. Yeah, yeah. So think about us just putting the carbon dioxide back where it came from. Hmm. So we're using identical technology when you're thinking about the seismic analysis and you're thinking about injecting the CO2 into, you know, deep formations. Yeah. We're using the same drillers. We're huh. using the same drilling techniques. And we're putting the CO2 where it came from. Hmm. A lot of times, although not always, but sometimes there are plans to basically utilize old oil fields. Really? But the whole idea with oil fields was to extract, essentially, even if you're fracking, was to mm -hmm. break it apart to release it. Mm -hmm. So once it's broken apart, you couldn't like put stuff back in and expect it to hold, could you? Well, there's there's pressure, right? So you're every time you're extracting a mass out of, a, yeah. of an area, you're you're lowering it, effectively lowering its pressure. So there's pressure opportunities for us to re-inject huh. re material, in this yeah. case, carbon dioxide, into, into those holes. Cool. All right. Well, I've beat that horse long enough, especially because I don't know what I'm talking about and you're helping. Thank you. It, I mean, you know, in general, what you're, you're sounding confident that mm -hmm. like this will work. What, like, are there any large scale proof of concepts out there that say, yeah, it really does work for a long time? Oh, for sure. So, um, the first project that was really built was, uh, the, in, in Decatur, Illinois, ADM had a large ethanol facility. And they um, they created it what we call a, a large uh, class six sequestration site. So EPA, there's a, there's a whole host of things that you need to do to apply for what's called a class six permit, mm. which is effectively storing CO two permanently underground. Mm. And um, ADM went through that process, and so now they have a project that's been up and running, I believe, since 2018. Yeah. Um, and they're capturing between 500,000 and 800,000 tons of CO two a year, and permanently injecting it into a class six site. That's right by their ethanol facility. And all signs are that it's working? Yes. That's cool. So question then, this has got to be a double-edged sword because I would think environmentalists, you know, depending on the day, love you and hate you. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all over the spectrum. I mean, the, what we subscribe to is all of the above. We've got a massive climate challenge in front of us. We believe in electrification. We believe in um, renewable energy. Um, there's so many things that need to be done. Um, and there's a right now solution and that is get, taking the CO2 that's being emitted yeah. and, um, through this energy transition and, and taking care of it, not letting it go into the atmosphere and putting it underground. So there are some people, some groups that would say anything that enables fossil is a big challenge for us. And then there's gradients to that. You know, if there is a situation where a coal fired power plant was going to be retired and we put a capture system on the tail end of it mm -hmm. and then allowed it to be productive for another 15 or 20 years, that's going to upset a larger subset of people than if we were going in and decarbonizing a natural gas power plant mm -hmm. that already was expected to have another 20-year life. It was in the electric resource plant of the utility. So rather than them just emitting 
all of that CO2, we can capture it and put it underground. So there's less less cantankerous mm. uh, opposition to that. So it's like a continuum. There is. And right. so I suppose invi- like fanatical environmentalists don't want to do anything that, that perpetuates the use of fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Others would say, but you're really improving climate change in the interim. Mm-hmm. So I guess it depends who you're talking to. Yeah, I think... We, again, energy transition is different things for different people. Yeah, yeah. And our view at the company and our investors and uh, our stakeholders believe that um, you know, we need natural gas. We're not, we'd love to be able to go to renewables overnight. We'd love to be able to have a, a fully electrified uh, transportation fleet. But we don't, and it's, yeah. it's going to take some yeah. time. Well, quick reminder to listeners, this is Proco 360, named Best Denver Podcast, three years running, and this year named Best Colorado Business Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere in Choose Colorado. My guest today is Brent Lewis of Carbon America. Thanks to our sponsors, Kinsley Meetings. Hey, these guys really know meetings. If you should be outsourcing your meetings or maybe you think you're doing a good job, but wonder if you could do better, you guys should call Steve Kinsley. Also, Via Technologies, thanks to them for hosting Proco 360. Check out the website. Clint and the team keep the website up and running. Uh, I'm also developing a partnership with Colorado Biz Magazine, so more on that soon. Go to Proco360.com to check out these sponsors. Back to uh, back to Brent from Carbon America. And you describe your technology as, or, or your company as technology agnostic. So what are a couple of the common methods for sequestering carbon? So... The very first um, emitters that we're, we call them emitters are basically CO2 emitters in the industrial sector are ethanol plants. Ethanol mm. plants through the fermentation process emit nearly pure carbon dioxide. So, you know, if you, if you drive by an ethanol plant in eastern yeah. Colorado or Nebraska and you see the fermenter plant, you see the smokestack, that's 98, 99% carbon dioxide that's being released. That's so interesting because we think of ethanol production, we think it's climate friendly. It, well, it will be when we start capturing the yeah. CO2 and putting it underground. So yeah. the technology associated with uh, with the capturing of that CO2, it's basic, it's it's proven, it's out there in the market. Hundreds of plants have been created to capture the CO2 from ethanol plants. So it's effectively just a compression system. Mm-hmm. You're compressing the CO2 and you're stripping out some trace elements like H2O, nitrogen, um, and then you're getting a pure CO2, which you're, it's, you're compressing to liquid form to transport. Yeah. What's another? I mean, so is that is that basically the lion's share of what you're doing is essentially capturing and compressing and then moving? That's right. Yeah. So our view clearly is to move away from that. We want to get to much larger scale. So we might have an ethanol plant, and we're we're developing five projects right now, and we we might have an ethanol plant that's emitting say two hundred thousand tons of CO two. What does that mean? You know, you guys guys yeah. in your industry, and I'm not picking, I was just like, what are, what's a thousand tons? Uh, like, who knows? I know you, sometimes you can equate it to the number of cars on the road, but how do you think about that? I think about it, um, there's certain thresholds that you have to reach uh, for the tax credit. So there's, a, yeah, so there's, okay, how many, how many, how much CO2 do we have to capture in a year? I mean, the, it's hard to quantify the volume of CO2. Let me, I'm going to probably butcher the math a bit. Yeah. But it would take about 30, I'm, again, I'm going to be off by a factor of you know, 10 or 20%, but call it 35 sure. um, like LPG truck tankers yep. a day uh, to kind of take care of about 170,000 tons a year of CO2. Wow. Okay. Uh, I have another statistic from yeah. your website too, that we need to capture 800 gigatons 
of carbon dioxide to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and that would cost hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Mm-hmm. Like, this just seems mind-numbingly impossible. Is there even enough ground? Is there even enough space under Earth to store that much carbon? Great question. The answer is yes, um, substantially enough. Wow. But however, it's not ubiquitous in the U.S. Or, but the U.S. is actually, we're like the Saudi Arabia of carbon cap, carbon sequestration opportunities. It's just the huh. geology that we have here is really well-suited. And, and, it, and it runs across... You know, the North Midwest all the way down through Texas, um, the Gulf Coast. Hmm. There's some amazing yeah. areas where you can sequester uh, millions and millions and millions of tons of CO2. Wow. Yeah. So is it conceivable that if we put our mind to it and if companies like yours got enough funding, that that we could capture enough carbon and sequester it to essentially stop the progression of climate change? I think the short answer is no. It's all of the above. Yeah. I, I think we can maintain, make a material impact in the mm-hmm. order of 10 to 20% of what needs to be done. Mm. So it's a material mm. yeah. Um, yeah. contributor, but it's not a panacea. Mm-hmm. And then other countries, you know, if the United States or, you know, other countries with similar mindsets would do it and other countries mm-hmm. don't, I mean, that must be a question. Like if you were doing it, but China's continuing to burn coal, like, What's why? Why? Well, I think what we're trying to prove here in the U.S. with with a market that's really accommodating a reasonable economic return for carbon capture mm-hmm. and sequestration, what we want to see with that market is an ability to drive down costs. Uh, so yeah. through through educating the capital markets, we want to be able to drive down capital costs. Yeah. For the technologies, we want to see more proliferation. That will ultimately drive down costs. I mean, analog is is yeah. the solar panels. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Now they're now they're cost competitive with traditional energy, right? For sure. And and, yeah. and beat yeah. many areas depending on the solar yeah. activity in that particular geography. Does this work without government intervention and in, in funding? No, we need government support still. Forever, We're, do you think? Well, okay. we need to be able to put some price on carbon, right? Because carbon yeah. itself, yeah. Um, you can't create a carbon market where you can utilize the carbon and generate revenue. There's some, right? right you but you can't things. resell most of it. Does, you, yeah. There's not a big market to no. like, capture it and then sell it for a profit. No. There's just not there. No, the markets won't, you know, there's yeah. people that are creating really innovative ways to um, to um, you know, manufacture carbon-related um, goods. And, goods. Mm. and yeah. so there's, there's that. But you talked earlier about China, right? And yeah. that's, for us, we are, as much as we are return- Driven, we're very, very much mission driven. So we believe we. While I, you also mentioned earlier, and it's true that we we say that we're technology agnostic. We do have a technology that we are developing. We're not betting the farm on it, if yeah, you will. Yeah. But we're really excited about what it can do. It um it it, it captures CO two by basically chilling the flue gas. Hmm. And then separating the CO2 by temperature, right? So you're it sounds freezing. like a much more efficient process. Yeah, it is. And there's huh. no amines, no solvents, no sorbents, mm-hmm. no membranes. Yeah. So what we're trying to do, and it's really early days, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we are starting to talk to um, people in China about our technology, hmm. and they're very excited about the possibility of working with us in a joint venture. So well, let's still, hope that happens. Still early days. Yeah. So we, we, you're not going to solve the climate issue yeah. if you don't talk to China and you don't talk to India. Yeah. Now, backing up a little bit mm-hmm. and, and talking about becoming a business, you know, you do sound really confident that the technology works, mm-hmm. that it's got positive outcomes. Um, 
you know, what was the process? I mean, uh, at some point, others before you had tried carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I guess you knew how to compress the gas, how to separate, how to compress uh, and store. But at what point did you feel like it, you could make it a business for you? I'm a, I'm a finance guy, so I'm not an engineer or a geologist. I ran the numbers, and um, I saw a massive potential for scale. I mean, there's, I mean, there's almost an infinite market, and hmm. we look around at the folks that are doing this, and we're cheering them on. We want them all to be successful because that's going to make the sector successful. But when I ran our project finance models, when I looked at the value of Section 45Q, when I looked at some of the other the potential tax code, areas. the tax code advantages that allow these yeah. things to be funded. Yes, thank. That's exactly yeah. right, Dave. Yeah. So running the project models for these early projects and the the projects that we call the low hanging fruit are the ethanol projects, mm. just because they're pure CO two emitters. There's no yeah. novel technology, and it's easy to capture. It's easy to capture. Yeah, and so we can run the models out. Hey, but then we want to be able to work with that playbook. Mm -hmm. and then work to drive costs down yeah. as we get to the big you know, coal plant's going to be where an ethanol plant yeah. might be emitting 200,000 tons. A big coal-fired power plant might be emitting 8 million tons. Mm. But and, you think if you get good enough at managing ethanol, you could apply that technology. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So when you got this thing started, uh, you ran the models. There must have been some unexpected obstacles that you encountered? Were they technology? Were they government funding? Were they investor? I mean, where did these obstacles come from? I'd say, you know, it took us some time to raise our first real institutional round of capital. Um, our business model and what we were trying to do was a little different than most others that were looking at coming into the sector. What we had was an asset project-based model, right? Technology agnostic. We're going to go and be the best, smartest, fastest developer of carbon capture and sequestration projects in the country. But, oh, by the way, we happen to have this technology. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like a uh, Reese's peanut butter cup where you got chocolate and peanut butter and we put them together oh. and they taste great, but yeah. not everybody liked it. Yeah. Did Are your investors, did they, are they mission-driven investors or are they, look, I mean, it's 30 million in, in your first round of VC, another 15 coming. You know, they have expecting, they're expecting some returns. And what happens if the government decides to r reduce its subsidies? I mean, how does that model play out? Okay, so first, our our, our our investors are aligned with us and what we are doing. Um, they are return. So, they're return centric, so they're not they're not impact funds or catalytic funds yeah. or or things like that. It's a it's a large pension fund, mm. and uh, this is public information. So CPP yeah, Investments yeah. is our largest investor, and they have about half a trillion dollars under management. What kind of fund? Uh, Canada Pension Plan. It's so it's a, a pension plan, a, meaning by the time you clean up the earth, all their current customers are going to be dead. <laughs> that the, well, their children and grandchildren oh, okay. will be able to enjoy right, the earth right, for good. as long yeah, as they yeah. okay. But that's an interesting observation. <laughs> I haven't thought about it that way. And then we have a, a venture capital fund that is really the venture capital fund for uh, powering utilities and industrial mm -hmm. companies. So, yeah. so they've got a vested interest in supporting their limited partners that are invested in them, mm -hmm. and they liked us. So... So um, getting um, investors excited about an asset business and a venture business, yeah. those are typically two different types of investors. Right, right. Venture capitalists on one side and the pri private equity and the infrastructure capital guys yeah. on the other. So we merged them together. We thought it was a great way to build a business. Yeah, and in these, in, in today's world with as high visibility as thing, things like climate change and other social issues, it does seem that there are venture capitalists or other kinds of funders that care about both. They do, right. And, so, and they can make it work. You, you, I think every week, I mean, my, I'm highly tuned to this market, yeah, of course, yeah, right? Yeah. So does, every week I see somebody coming out with another billion dollar fund, $10 billion fund, 
$20 billion, like KKR, yeah. Apollo, all those guys are all jumping into not not just CCS but climate right yeah climate because yeah. they're because they're investors mm-hmm. they're limited partners they want them to they want that yeah yeah, you're listening to Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Brent Lewis, CEO of Carbon America. What a great name. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So who is, when you're getting, obviously you have a plan to generate revenue. It's not just uh, government tax uh, relief. I mean, uh, companies are turning this into revenue. So, are these who's buying? Who's paying for this? The emitters themselves? Are there are there people buying carbon offsets and you know leveraging those, profiting from that? Who's who's your customer? It's all of the above in many ways, right? So, but we look at the emitters, the the people that are polluting as our customers. We need to be able to earn their trust. Say we can help solve this problem that we all have. Yeah. And and get them to understand and have confidence in our ability to execute on our on our project model. So they, they essentially they're going to take some of their profits and pay for CO2 sequestration. Do they have to? No, so that's not exactly what I meant by that. <laughs> when okay. I say customer, that we got to win them over. Yeah. Right? So it's a, it's not necessarily a revenue customer. Where our business model actually has us do all of the capital work, right? So we'll we'll invest, we'll build the equipment, we we'll we'll finance it. Yeah. Um because there's that carbon market with the section 45Q tax credits. The ability to stack other things on top of the 45Q is what's going to really open up the market and enable the less economic projects like the power plants and the cement plants where we really have to decarbonize. So who's, I'm still confused, who's really paying for this? Like, are these people who are polluting in some other faraway place that need to buy carbon offsets and then, or they need to adjust, get the tax credits in order to depollute some other place? I I don't understand. Okay, sorry. So- (laughs) Section 45Q tax credits, if you monetize those, that's a revenue stream. So that's effectively the government paying for part of the project, okay? Mm -hmm. Then there's the voluntary carbon offset market, right? And so you see all of these companies wanting to go to net zero. Right. They're not actually buying power from a zero emitter. They're offsetting someplace else. Yeah. They may may say, okay, thank you very much, Carbon America, for doing a great job of decarbonizing this um, cement plant. Yeah. Um, We may be willing to... for. Twenty or thirty dollars a ton over the next ten years, we'll pay you that um, if you continue to do that work. Mm-hmm. So that is a revenue stream that will go to pay back the capital and get generate mm-hmm. some. Sort and it of may not; they may not be the owner of the cement plant. They may they be something be. all t- right. They may be a retailer no. that wants to be carbon neutral. That says, if you take it out of the cement plant, we'll pay you to do that so that we can be carbon neutral. That's right. Got it. So there's yeah. so there's companies like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft and others that mm-hmm. are really on the forefront of creating carbon credits and buying carbon credits for carbon cap- capture and sequestration. There's a direct air capture plant in Iceland called mm-hmm. Climeworks mm. and Orca plant. It's Climeworks is the company. Orca is the plant. Um, they're capturing about, it's not much, like 6,000 tons a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they're on the frontier because direct air capture is very expensive technology to capture oh, I CO2. I could see that. You're capturing yeah. huge volumes and and, and yeah. stripping out small amounts yeah, of less something. Than, less than 1%. Yeah. So if Microsoft, would Microsoft actually write a check to Carbon America? Yes. Got or it. a project associated Or something with like that. America. Yeah. That's got right. it. Um, so your investors must see a, a, a path to profitability. Mm-hmm. Are they looking, you know, climate change is hopefully going to be fixed in 30 years, 50 years. Is that how long they're willing to wait? 
for their, I mean, I mean, what's, you know, how do they evaluate their, the mission versus like their expected ROI? Well, you know, we we expect to be revenue positive next year. So, so we're going to be revenue gener- positive, meaning that's, I've never heard that term, like cash flow positive, generating revenue. Yes. Right. Generating revenue. Yeah. We won't, yeah. we won't be cash flow positive, but yep. we will be generating, generating revenue, generating revenue. Got it. Okay. Yep. And so much of the the discretionary capital or cash that we'll be receiving will mm-hmm. want to be put back into capital yeah, projects, yeah, right? That makes sense. So, yeah. so the business model. So, we some of our investors have like you know fifteen year horizons. Some of them have are a little shorter, but mm-hmm. the, but the majority of the capital is a longer term yeah. horizon. And you know we believe the company will will create a tremendous amount of value, and how that value is determined will be based on. Ex- forward expected EBITDA multiples. Yeah, but that's kind of scary because right now all the modeling is based on tax code, and in fifteen years, uh, could yeah. be different. Right. So, so yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, we don't have to go into that much, but I I do find that kind of interesting. There's obviously the risk that the VCs take. I mean, they're thinking about that. Oh, sure, a hundred percent. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think the idea is that the world has awakened and recognizes mm. the challenges associated yeah, so with climate. Yeah, so maybe the pressure to, to perform goes up as yeah. opposed to going away through government changes and things. Yeah, and I th- I, just yeah. on policy, when you think about that in the U.S. in particular, um, it is one of the only areas I think that I can find where there is bipartisan support for carbon capture and sequestration. Mm. It, 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 it addresses a lot of the concerns that the Democrats have, the, you know, the, the left side of the House, if you will, on climate and environment. And on the other side of the house, mm-hmm. it, it does enable some fossil activity. It does placate sure. a lot of their constituents. Mm-hmm. So you're able to clean up the environment and sustain jobs in the areas where, where those folks and, are. And yeah. And to be fair, I mean, to be practical, we still need energy. So, yeah. 100%. Uh, yeah. yeah. So now I'm going to, uh, you know, talk about this notion of your, t- I love your tagline, making mm-hmm. climate change history, because it's like a double meaning when you think about your team. What's your team? Your team must be enamored with the idea of being VC funded. And most of people probably, or some people probably have stock options or something, blah, blah, blah. And they care about the mission. Yeah. So how do you talk about both in a way that like, doesn't make one feel more important or tainted by the other? Wow. Yeah. So that's a bit uh, to take on. So I would say that everybody, we, we have a culture interview with everybody that joins the firm. Um, and it's not, it's not an indoctrination. It's really, is there an alignment of values and mission, right? We're not evangelistic about it, but we are, this is important to us. We want to make sure folks that are joining are really, really believing that what we're doing is important because that's an, that's an imp- really important element of who we are. I have to give props to Haley Abar, our director of People and Places, and she was the one that came up with making climate change history. So props yeah. to Haley. Cool. Uh, yeah. You, I guess I'm going to further further that question with what mm-hmm. what role do you think your mission plays in a in attracting talent, uh, and and then how do you manage the expectations around where their focus is going to be relative to the mission versus like driving eventual profitability? Yeah. So we've because we're pulling a lot of people from the oil and gas sector, right? Because mm-hmm. we find a, a there's a element the generation within the oil and gas sector perhaps that are like is this what i really want to be doing right and i don't want to put i'm not going to name anybody yeah but of course it, it's it's a it's a common refrain when when we interview people that are coming from oil and gas and wow i i couldn't believe i'd be able to actually apply my geology skills for for good 
<laughs> right? So that's a little, a little quixotic, right? But um, w- mission is front and center. But but we also are on a mission to get great returns for our 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 investors as well. And and everybody that joins Carbon America gets stock options. Everybody participates. Yeah. Um, Carbon America, Colorado company. That's super cool. What is? I mean. To me, it's cool. I mean, that's my whole mission is promoting Colorado, great Colorado entrepreneurs. What does it mean something to the company, your company? Colorado, we, I, I moved to Colorado in 2010 from New York City, and I've never looked back. I, I think that, that there's a connotation of Colorado of clean and environmentally friendly. So I think it really augments our brand. And, and hopefully our company augments Colorado's brand as well. If we're on the forefront, we'll be doing the first carbon capture and sequestration projects to be done in Colorado. Wow. When's We're, that starting? Uh, the announcement will be made in a couple of weeks. Ah, so by the time this is released, you better, I'm going to release this in two weeks. Okay. So you better be ready. Okay. Well, well I, I'd love to na- name the names. We've gone through the press yeah. release, but we just can't release it. Right wow. Now. That's yeah. cool. Well, by the time it's re- this podcast is yeah. released, it'll all be lining up. That's exciting news though. Yeah. Really yeah. exciting no, news. No, what, what the great thing about Colorado as well is we've had an incredible ability maybe it's luck but i think it's really people want to come to colorado we've got tons of texas transplants that have left their place left their homes in houston and uh came come to colorado so colorado is a destination for a lot of people and it's been a a great pull factor for folks that aren't weren't currently living here yeah and i would think you know to a company like carbon america you've got technology you've got environmental sort of intersecting yeah. that's kind of cool and we have oil and gas Right, so there's obviously a big energy s- sector here as well. So we're able to pull people that are already in Colorado as well, got and it. and the talent yeah. and the knowledge about how do you put the CO two back underground. We've got a lot of world class professionals right here in the state of Colorado to to really help build out our team. Cool. Um, last question. I mean, where's where do you think the carbon capture industry is going now? I have a sense that you think it's just getting started. Um, and you said earlier in the interview that you thought, you know, the carbon sequestration could impact maybe 10 to 20% of the climate change solution overall. I mean, so can we build out carbon sequestration fast enough to actually achieve those kinds of ends? We're trying to go as fast as we can. And we're trying to break some of the old models of three-year pre-feed studies and five-year feed studies. And we're going to get to this in 10 years. Uh, we want to go now. Right. So I think the scale up is there. How fast we go is going to be a function of a, a number of things. Um, one is how quickly can the um, Environmental Protection Agency review and approve sequestration permits? Um, how quickly can we drive the costs of carbon capture down for power plants and cement plants? Um, how sophisticated and how much up the curve can the capital markets get in this sector so that we can drive the yeah. cost of capital down? You know, it seems like the trickiest one might be really interesting because, you know, the EPA is very particular, very process-oriented, of course, and they should be. It's just that, like, you've got this crazy sort of tension between almost like we had with COVID vaccines, right? Like we got a problem today. Don't we have to accelerate this process? Well, here's the thing. Um, Really good news. Um, The EPA and the the administration and previous government have been really pushing hard to get states to be able to um, approve permits and not have to go through the EPA. Mm -hmm. So we have, that's called primacy. So the state of North Dakota has it. The state of Wyoming has it. 
Louisiana is expected to get it. Texas was working on it. In fact, you know, Colorado is kicking the tires on on primacy as well. It's a process, but what that'll do is it'll it'll obviate some of the bottleneck issues that'll be at the EPA if it was just the EPA and their professional yeah, staff yeah. reviewing. So that's that's the good news. I think we'll pro- I wouldn't be surprised that you know within within a couple of years there'll be ten states that are on their way to yeah. primacy. It's a long time though. Yeah, it is. When we're facing a we want to go problem. fast. Yeah. yeah. So last thing, what what would you say to somebody who even listening to this whole podcast would say, yeah, still not that comfortable, you know, pumping carbon gas, well, not gas, but putting carbon underground and trusting that it stays there. I'd say um, it's been happening in Decatur, Illinois. We've been doing it um, in enhanced oil recovery for dozens and dozens of years. Um, there's other examples globally where we're putting CO2 underground. Um, it, it's, it is the, the, what you need to do to get approval from the EPA or from the state of North Dakota, for example, you know, our permits can be between 600 and 800 pages long. The amount of, um, professional, um, input, like the, mm, the yeah, amount of integrity, yeah. the work that is done and the geo it's incredible. I, I mean, I was not in geology. I was a wind guy and a solar guy that I was an investment banker. Um, but looking at the amount of how much we understand of the subsurface is, is phenomenal to me. Like what's going on a mile, mile and a half underground. We have very good understanding of what's happening there. Well, let's wrap up on that. Okay. I'm your host, Dave Tabor today on Proco 360. You've been listening to my conversation with Brent Lewis, CEO of Carbon America. Brent, thank you. I, I had no idea really, even though I paired and everything, I, I learned a lot. So thank you. Well, well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, share uh, the good news about Carbon America with uh, with your with your audience. The good news. You sound like an evangelist. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you'll submit a review in your app. Thanks again to our show sponsors, Via Technologies, Kinsley Meetings, and soon to come, Colorado Biz Magazine. That's a wrap. Live, work, love Colorado. 